It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ahead of the 2020 American presidential election, most media attention has been centered on the Democratic candidates, the largest and most diverse group on record. But there's another race happening in parallel. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in this episode of The Economist Asks, we speak to the candidates challenging Donald Trump for the 2020 Republican nomination for president, as we ask, what's the future of the Republican Party? The genie has been let out of the bottle on a variety of fronts that will do lasting damage to the Republican Party. Man, when I was in Congress, we would take Obama's head off when we talked about all the debt he was adding. Now my Republican colleagues, they don't say squat about Trump. It's a wild card, but, uh, you know, more and more people are saying we have a criminal in the Oval Office. I'm joined by John Prideau, our U.S. editor, who's interviewed all three of the men who've thrown their hats into the Republican ring, and two of them are still standing. Hello there, John. Hi, Anne. So, John, polling shows President Trump's approval ratings among Republicans solidly at about 90%. It's not moving, despite all the noise around impeachment. Why is anyone swimming against this powerful tide? Well, the argument these candidates standing against President Trump in the Republican primary make is that his support within the Republican Party is actually softer than it seems. That if you look at the headline numbers, which look so intimidating, they don't tell you the full story. At the same time, they're also trying to cause a fuss about the way that the Republican Party is closing down debate within its own primary. So six states now have said there won't be any contest to Donald Trump in those states. So they're trying to get a bit of of outrage going about censorship and closing down debate. Okay, so tell us about these Republican challenges. Who are they? How do they compare to each other? Well, there are three, or or really sort of two and a half now. Um, Bill Weld is a former two-term governor of Massachusetts, very conservative in the old sense, fiscally conservative, worries a lot about deficit, very keen on tax cuts. There's Joe Walsh, who's a former Illinois congressman who became a talk radio host. And third, you have Mark Sanford, who in a way is the biggest of the three in terms of his reputation in American politics, two-term governor of South Carolina. He appeared to be the most credible challenger to Donald Trump. But on November the 12th, he announced he was suspending his campaign. I spoke to him just after his announcement to ask him what had changed. I was never delusional on thinking that I could become president. If you look at the history of the last five challenges to one's own party at the presidential level, it never works out well for the challenger. But in many cases, they're able to raise ideas, create debate, and in some cases impact the election, not in the primary, but in the general election uh, months later. And so that was the hope, um, not to win, but to create a conversation about what it means to be a Republican these days, because I think the party has lost its ways on a variety of fronts. And front and center for me was the issue of the budget deficits and spending. I I think it's just remarkable the way in which there's been an about face as to what the Republican Party has traditionally stood for on these fronts. 
why, if it's been a useful thing previously, you know, and if challenges to the president, the sitting president from his own party have performed a useful role, why hasn't it worked out for you this time? Well, something came along that I didn't anticipate uh, that's only come along twice in the history of our republic, and that is an impeachment. And it, it literally, you could feel it, sucked all the oxygen out of the room on other issues outside of impeachment. I mean, literally, uh, one of the folks helping the office was on the producer, uh, on with the producer the Friday before we were, you know, I decided to pull the plug. And their point was, look, we want to have him on the show, but he can only talk about impeachment. And at the end of the day, I didn't get in this race to quote, only talk about impeachment. And impeachment sucks the oxygen out the room because it dominates the news cycle or because it makes Republicans more defensive of President Trump than they might otherwise be? Or is it a mixture of both of those things? It's both of those. So at one level, it exacerbates the tribal element to politics and it's completely blue team versus red team. So it, it absolutely creates a division that makes the debate of more complex and intricate ideas difficult. And it just has its own media weight, wherein there is, you know, 24-hour cycle focus and and attention to, to that issue, which means other issues are not being discussed. Let's talk a bit about the future of the Republican Party. President Trump will either be re-elected in November next year, or he won't be re-elected. If he's not, do you think the Republican Party snaps back to something like its pre-Trump state, or do you think it just continues as it is now under different leadership? Um, I think that the genie has been let out of the bottle on a variety of fronts that will do lasting damage to the Republican Party and the brand that it ultimately represented. So if you look at the midterm congressional elections as a barometer, what you would see is that in droves, working moms and soccer moms and young millennials turned away from what had been the Republican Party, their historic choice in terms of vote. And what they said, and, and I heard it because I saw this in the congressional district that I used to represent, what they said was what's going on here just on tone alone is inconsistent with what I've been trying to teach my kids or what my parents, though I may not love them every day, have been trying to teach me. I'm out. And, and so I think that what is taking place right now entails lasting damage to the Republican Party with, with that group or frankly, people who believe as conservatives in the importance of balance of power and the institutions that sustain it, people that, you know, farmers in the Midwest that have supply chains that they're connected to and what it means in terms of trade. You know, what's, what's telling for me is that, you know, in the wake of Hoover, there were three terms of Roosevelt because of the searing experience that people had with the Great Depression. And so it locked in you know, in essence, 40 years of Democratic control in the House of Representatives that followed. I think that you're going to see a, a lasting change here unless we have indeed that robust conversation about what it means to be a Republican. What kind of pushback do you get on your thesis from fellow Republicans who are still supportive of the president or have been supportive of the president right from the get-go? I mean, I'm thinking somebody like Governor Nikki Haley, you know, your successor in South Carolina, who's got a book out at the moment that's you know, very supportive of President Trump, some minor disagreements on foreign policy, but really kind of all in and thinks he's terrific. And somebody you presumably know quite well. I mean, that's her, well. that's her political bet. She wants to become the next president. And that's the, the political bet that she's placing 
that will help enhance her odds of, of making that run. I mean, that's my reading of the tea leaves. I haven't spoke with her. But, I mean, I, I think if it looks like a duck and it smells like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. So, I mean, that's just political calculus. When you talk to people privately on the Hill, there's much concern about the president and sort of where he's taking things. That's why you've seen the record number of Republican retirements from the House of Representatives. People either just try and keep their head down and survive this, what they hope to be temporary storm, or they occasionally speak out. But, you know, I did in the House. Uh, Jeff Flake did in the Senate. Bob Corker did in the Senate. And we're all gone. So, you know, the, the rule of the game in politics for too many people is the name of the game is staying in the game. They look at the three of us as examples and they're like, well, I, I don't want to go there. I think I'll keep my head down. Now, it does look like the Republican primary won't be terribly uh, competitive, let's say. But there is a very competitive Democratic primary on. Can I ask, you must have thought a good deal about how to beat President Donald Trump in, a, in an electoral contest. Which member of the Democratic field do you think would be hardest for him to run against? Who would, out of the current lot who are in there, um, and there are very many of them, who do you look at and think, well, that candidate might you know, put up a stiff challenge to President Trump? In essence, anybody who's breathing. Um, and I mean that in this sense. If you look at the president's numbers, he's never top 45%, which is a fairly amazing phenomenon in terms of modern day presidency. Never top 45%. So if the Democrats put up somebody who comes across as reasonable and not scary, they stand very strong shot of, of winning this thing just because of where the president has put himself, given the degree of vitriol that he seems to enjoy. And, and so I, I think that creates problems for somebody like Elizabeth Warren. When you go out and propose $52 trillion, not billion, but trillion dollars of, in essence, new programs and new spending, it frightens the soccer mom. They're like, well, I, I don't like Trump. I think he's a jerk. I think he's obnoxious. But I don't want my taxes to go up. And if they're talking about some giant expansion and, and redo of the way things are done in and from Washington, then it may tip them back toward sort of neutrality in that front and, and giving Trump the – the age. So I, I think that anybody who comes across as not scary will be somebody that would be capable of beating Trump. So a not scary, reasonable person sounds to me like a Biden or a Buttigieg, that sort of figure. I would agree with that. So Governor Sanford, could you imagine in November 2020, when it comes to it, if the Democratic Party nominates somebody who's reasonable and non-scary, you might imagine for the first time in your life as a voter abandon the Republican Party. Yeah, I'm not going to make news on that front today. Um, I, I'll, I'll take November when November comes. There's a lot of you know debate to be had between here and there, and a lot of stands to be made. And uh, who knows what else comes given the way in which you never know what's coming the next day with Trump. So, But in the meantime, I, I think it's incumbent upon all of us as Americans to look for some way of creating a debate and a conversation that's robust and real about what it means to be a Republican these days, because I do believe the party's lost its way. Governor Sanford, thank you very much. My pleasure. Take care. So Governor Sanford wants a debate, but he doesn't think he's the person to stimulate it. What do you think of his comment that among Democratic candidates, anyone breathing or not scary, as he put it, could beat President Trump? 
It's quite a good line, isn't it? It is a good line. It may be a bit over-optimistic and complacent. Donald Trump's chances of getting re-elected in November 2020 are not bad, I would say. So then there were two. Bill Weld is leading Joe Walsh in the polls. He's polling at 13% in New Hampshire. What's his pitch? He's a rather patrician New England figure, Republican of the old school. He studied classics at Harvard and at Oxford. As a lawyer, he worked on the Watergate inquiry. When he was governor of Massachusetts, he had a very strong record for being fiscally conservative, for getting taxes and deficits and spending down. And he still thinks that that's what Republicans really want. He's been out of frontline politics since 1997 when he stood down as governor of Massachusetts, but he did stand as the libertarian vice presidential candidate in 2016, didn't get very far. So I really wanted to know what had drawn him back into Republican politics now to run against an incumbent president with a 90% approval rating among Republicans when he could be off fishing for trout in ponds in New England, which is what he really likes to do. Two things. First, uh, I would not agree that the president starts out with a 90-10 edge because my job is to enlarge the electorate of people who are going to vote in the Republican uh, primaries beyond the party leaders and uh, party faithful in each state. The Republican State Committee in every state in the United States now is the Trump organization. They've made a blend of those two. So it's not surprising that the party hierarchies are dead set against having any competition whatsoever. Uh, Having said all that, uh, you know, if I come out with 45% in uh, New Hampshire instead of 51%, would that be winning? No, it would not be winning. It would, however, be a substantial achievement because those percentages knocked off uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, Eugene McCarthy in 1968 with 41%, and uh, Pat Buchanan with 37% against George Bush, 41. So there are alternative uh, universes that can come out of the New Hampshire primary short of outright victory. But, you know, I'm a New England Republican, and they understand what that means in the New Hampshire Republican Party. So I have high hopes uh, for a favorable outcome in that primary. You know, we all think of John Kasich, my great friend, as the runner-up in the last cycle. And he was, but he won only one state. So if you see me with three or four out of New England, say California, say maybe a uh, Wisconsin or uh, Colorado or New Mexico uh, in the early going, th- then it really is a dogfight. Mark Sanford, who's another former Republican governor, dropped out of the Republican primary saying that impeachment has sucked all the oxygen out of the race. What's your read on the political effects of the impeachment hearings on you know, Republican Party dynamics? Does it make it harder for you to get attention in New Hampshire and other early states? Uh, I, I would think not. I, I, would, I would have thought that uh, the day after day drumbeat uh, of negative evidence uh, resulting in uncontested or uncontestable facts would put oxygen into the room rather than taking it out. So I, I didn't see that quite the same way. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a wild card. But, uh, you know, more and more people are saying we have a criminal in the Oval Office. Uh, the obstruction was clear, convincing uh, crime. Uh, the Ukraine matter is exactly what the founding fathers feared when they put the removal clause into the Constitution. You know, those are not good uh, thoughts and words for Donald Trump. Let's talk about the Republican defense that's made of Donald Trump. I mean, you, as you say, have some experience in this area because you were counsel to the House Judiciary Committee during the Watergate scandal. The defense that some Republicans have made, oh, well, Donald Trump didn't really do anything wrong, seems to have 
fallen apart a bit, particularly after recent testimony we've had from Ambassador Gordon Sondland, but also testimony from some others. And so the defense that I think you're starting to hear a bit more of from Republicans is, yes, Donald Trump did this. Yes, it wasn't a wise thing to do, but it doesn't rise to the level of impeachment. Why is that argument wrong in your view? It's not an argument. It's simply a conclusion, and it's false. Uh, The two things that the Founding Fathers were most worried about were foreign interference in our affairs and corruption of the presidential office, by which they meant, and I mean, use of the presidential office to, to feather the nest of the president himself, either financially or politically or socially, business. It doesn't matter. It's just a misuse of the office. The residents of the colonies were deeply suspicious of that executive. And Madison and Jefferson and Hamilton and Jay, they needed that removal clause in there to make the argument that the executive would not ripen into a monarch, which, of course, is precisely what Donald Trump desires. The other argument that you hear Republicans making a bit was, well, we shouldn't impeach the president in an election year because there's an election coming up in November and let's leave it for voters to decide. What do you make of that line? That's a very woolly-headed assertion. You know, they have a clear duty under the Constitution to take action and they should eat their porridge and do their duty. (laughs) Sorry, I was just chuckling to myself. I think that's a very fine answer. Um, Let's turn our attention to the Republican Party and how it's changed since you ceased to be governor of Massachusetts. While you were governor, you were ranked as the most fiscally conservative in the country by the Cato Institute and the Wall Street Journal. And you've been a sort of vocal deficit hawk. Do you think there's been a big change in that kind of core question of Republican doctrine? How does a candidate like you prosper when the Republican electorate, to judge by Donald Trump's election, you know, doesn't care much about the deficit and is very happy to keep um, entitlements programs expanding? Well, I don't think Mr. Trump was elected because he was not a fiscal conservative. Indeed, as usual, he misrepresented himself and instead he was a fiscal conservative and would balance the budget and he's made no effort uh, whatsoever. I think the fact that I am an economic conservative is actually a plus when I argue to the middle road of the Republican electorate that I'm the real Republican in the race because... Mr. Trump has been a New York Palm Beach socialite his entire life. Most of his contributions have been to left-wing Democrats. I've been a Republican since I was 18 years old, and I've always been a fiscal conservative. So I think that's a, that's a plus starting out. Uh, and there were many issues in the 2016 election. Uh, there was a, it was a contest between Mr. Trump and Mrs. Clinton. It wasn't just Mr. Trump being considered uh, in, in isolation. So... I think at the end of the day, uh, it is a strong point for me that I'm an economic conservative. Some Republicans are suspicious of me because I'm rather a social liberal. I was early on pro-choice on reproductive rights, early on support for gay and lesbian rights. I appointed the woman to the Supreme Court of Massachusetts who wrote the opinion holding gay marriage is constitutionally required under both the equal protection and the due process laws. And there are some, you know, dyed-in-the-wool, rock-ribbed Republicans who don't care for that. But I've never been a movement conservative. I've always been on the libertarian edge of the Republican Party, and everybody knows it. Can I ask, this is almost ancient history now, but what's your theory about why Donald Trump won in 2016? Was it purely because voters looked at Hillary Clinton and didn't like her? Or did he tap into some sort of powerful, elemental, cultural or economic sort of backlash? Uh, because I suppose the, you know, the answer to that question affects your chances in 2020, does it not? 
I, I think he tapped into quite a lot. I thought the slogan, Drain the Swamp, was perfectly brilliant. And by the way, shared by me, uh, one of the reasons I have been always able to cut spending and, and not have budget spiral out of control is I have no uh, hesitation about cutting bureaucracies. And there's there's something in that. And uh, uh, in addition, Mr. Trump is quite the showman. He's he's uh, can be quite the entertainer. It's essentially what he's done for a living, uh, owning beauty contests and uh, reality TV, he would entertain people at his rally. So it was not completely a flash in the pan and not uh, totally irrational. He made people feel that this was uh, fun. This is, uh, you know, the, the nice people who voted for him. Of course, there are plenty of white supremacists and neo-Nazis who also voted for him, not for the same reason. But uh, no, I, I don't think it was quite so unthinkable as... Uh, as the beautiful people like to uh, say and think. I, I would say that he's not delivered on what he said. He said he was going to be an economic uh, conservative. He's not been. Uh, he said he was going to be just a genius in foreign affairs. The man has not even a child's understanding of foreign affairs, of the need for nuclear proliferation to be a taboo, of uh, how to deal with allies, of the fact that allies are force multipliers and cozies up to dictators all over the world. And as uh, Mr. McBride of the FBI said, uh, he may not be a Russian asset, but he might as well be. At some point, the Republican Party will not be led by Donald Trump. What happens at that point? Has Donald Trump transformed the Republican Party in a fundamental way? What's your take on that? I don't think he has at all. I think people will say, oh my gosh, is it safe to come out now? Was that a bad dream or did that really happen? Because the fact is that Republicans in Congress, while they may be circling the wagons and rallying around Mr. Trump because of everyone's obsession in Washington with getting reelected, they don't appreciate him asking them to walk the plank one little bit. I think everyone would be so pleased if he simply exited stage left. Governor Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Well, there's significant disagreement there on the degree to which Donald Trump has changed the Republican Party at large. Mark Sanford arguing the genie's been let out of the bottle, but Bill Weld maintaining if Trump loses, Republicans will say, was that just a bad dream? Which of them do you think is closer to the truth here? I'm more in the Sanford camp than the Weld camp. And and that's because if you look at the behavior of ambitious younger Republicans in the party, they're all trying to get as close to Donald Trump as they can. Right. So our third challenger, well, he has a rather different style to Bill Weld. Hey, this is former Illinois Congressman Joe Walsh. Uh, Good to be with you. I am challenging the sitting president, Donald Trump, in the Republican primary. John, punchy delivery. What do we need to know about Joe Walsh? In terms of character and temperament, he seems about as different from Weld as it's possible to be. Joe Walsh is a conservative talk radio host. He came into Congress on the Tea Party wave in 2010 and by a very narrow margin, 291 votes, served just one term representing a district in Illinois. He has a history of saying inflammatory things, particularly about Barack Obama. He said that Barack Obama um, is a Muslim, that he wasn't born in America and so forth. It's not really clear with Walsh whether he says these things as a way to be provocative to try and get a debate going about free speech and its limits or whether he genuinely believes them. And what does he say about his own record of those rather extreme statements now? He's done a fair bit of mea culpa. He's apologised for some of those things that he's written in the past, said they were unsensitive. He says that he's not a racist but does acknowledge that he's said racist things in the past. 
And it's interesting in terms of policies got quite a lot in common with President Trump. But what, what does that actually look like as an offer? Well, like President Trump, he's keen to repeal Obamacare. And like President Trump, he specializes in a kind of inflammatory style of policy proposals. So he said on the floor of the House when he was a congressman that the best thing to do at the border would be to dig a moat, fill it with alligators, and that would solve the immigration problem, which was an idea that Donald Trump later took up himself. So there are some similarities there, but he argues that he differs from the president in a fundamental way. The same people who voted for Trump voted for me. The same people who voted for Trump have listened to me on the radio for the last five or six years. I know why Trump got elected. I believe in a strong border. I want I want to keep my taxes low. I get all of that. But the difference is, it's not just the issues. The difference is, Trump lies. He truly believes he's above the law. Look, I, I actually voted for Trump in 2016, not because I liked him, not because I loved him. He wasn't Hillary. I figured Trump is a goof. Maybe he'll hire a few good people and maybe a few good things might happen. I, like a lot of Trump voters, wanted some disruption. We believed the American political system was sort of broken. I, I voted for disruption, but I did not vote to put a horrible guy in the White House. And that's where we're at now. What do you think good conservative policy looks like now? I mean, when you came into Congress, you were part of the Tea Party wave. Yeah. It was a very strong movement for cutting government spending, you know, cutting provision of some public services, assistance programs, and so forth. One of the things that distinguishes President Trump among sort of contemporary Republicans is that he doesn't seem to care too much about that <laughs> stuff. He, you know, he's very comfortable, it seems, with a large state. Has the Republican Party's version of conservatism moved on in a kind of decisive way from where it was when you entered Congress? And, and if it has, what do you do about that? It's a real big problem. I would say my brand of free market conservatism, it hasn't moved on, but it's hiding under the bed right now. The Republican Party is not a party. The Republican Party is a cult. Donald Trump is increasing the debt faster than Barack Obama did. Man, when I was in Congress, we would take Obama's head off uh, when we talked about all the debt he was adding. Now my Republican colleagues, they don't say squat about Trump. And, and look, maybe I'm not the biggest, greatest name in the world to challenge Trump. Maybe Mitt Romney could have, maybe John Kasich, maybe a bigger name could have, but they were afraid to. And that's why I'm telling my former Republican colleagues now, we have to stand against Trump now, because if we don't, these things we believe in, they may not come back for a long, long time because Trump's not going away. Joe, since declaring that you're standing against President Trump in the primary, journalists like me have been going through your Twitter feed, looking at things you've said Fascinating, in the past. Fascinating, isn't and, it? And in some of those cases, you've you know said you've changed your mind. There's a op-ed you wrote in the New York Times, I think. You said, at times I expressed hate for my political opponents. Yeah. We now see where that can lead. There's no place in our politics for personal attacks like that, and I regret making them. And I assume you're referring to things like saying that President Obama was a Muslim. I'm wondering, you know, given that you've had this sort of experience, this change of heart, if you can offer some insight into what it is about Americans, America's political culture at the moment that seems to encourage or reward that kind of ad hominem attack. You know, why do people on the two sides seem to dislike each other quite so much as they do? It pains me to say this, uh, but I helped create Trump. 
I really did. And for that, I am genuinely sorry. I went to Washington eight, nine years ago. I was part of that Tea Party class. I wanted to raise hell. I was pissed off about the debt and the size of government. And I fought. And oftentimes in that fight, I, I got over my skis and I got personal in that fight and I got away from the policy and I said things about Obama and my political opponents that I will always regret. I think some of the hate that I produced helped lead to Trump. Here's what's important. Donald Trump didn't divide America. America was divided before Trump and I would argue that the divide created Trump. Here's the problem with Trump. With Trump, it's all ugly personal attacks. There's nothing policy about Trump because Trump doesn't care about policy. This is why it's important that Donald Trump's not in the White House. Whoever the next president is, Republican or Democrat, they got to try to unite us. Now, we're not going to be united around policy, but I want to get to the point where we can have respectful fights about policy and not engage in some of the hateful politics that I practiced and certainly not engage in the hateful politics that Trump practiced in. If Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren is president, I want to have really energetic, respectful fights about policy. We got to get back to that place. Can I ask, you've described President Trump as a racial arsonist. After 2016, when President Trump won, there was a big debate about what the causes of his victory were, you know, whether it was because he had an economic message that people particularly liked, particularly in the upper Midwest, whether there was a racial element uh, to his appeal, or whether it was just that enough voters really disliked Hillary Clinton. Talk me through how you think about the, the race part of Donald Trump's appeal. And I'm in a very unique position to answer this question because, again, the people who voted for Trump have been my followers. They sent me to Congress and they've been listening to me on the radio. It's all of the above. They voted for Trump because the world around them is changing too fast. It's changing economically. It's changing racially. It's changing gender-wise. Everything's changing. And oh, by the way, our political elites in Washington, Republican and Democrat, kind of were ignoring these regular Americans. So along comes a demagogue like Trump and says, I'm going to drain the swamp and kick their ass. And these voters fell for it. We got to be honest, though, to your question. Part of it is racial. It is all the above. I mean, look at the issue of immigration. I, I believe in a strong border. I believe that if you want to come to America, you got to come here legally. And most of Trump's supporters believe that. But Donald Trump turned, took that issue and he opened the door to a, an ugly racial element that all of us need to stand against. Joe Walsh, thank you very much. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. John, so what did you make of him? Do you think potential voters would be willing to overlook Walsh's record and believe he could offer a different tone to the current leadership? Well, I was quite impressed by his willingness to look back at some things he'd said in the past and own them and apologise for them. I feel like that's something that's quite rare in politics now. In terms of his chances, he's less of a heavyweight figure than Bill Weld is within the party. You know, he's a single-term congressman from Illinois. He's not very well known. Temperamentally, there's an argument that he's better suited to take on Donald Trump because he appears more Trumpian. 
And I suppose the big question here is what difference, if any, do you think these three campaigns have or could make to President Trump's chances of re-election? Well, and I think it's hard to imagine any of these candidates causing Donald Trump sleepless nights. I think they're more interesting for the ideas that they're raising within the party. I felt you thought you were getting a bit of a sneak preview about what the debate might look like in the Republican Party one day, whenever it is, when Donald Trump is no longer in charge. Yeah, I agree. It did feel a bit like that. At that point, there'll be a big debate about what conservatism should stand for in America, what the Republican Party should be about. And in a way, you can see the beginnings of that debate with the conversations that these candidates are having. Well, thanks very much, John. My pleasure. And we'd love to know what you think. What would an alternative to Donald Trump within the Republican Party look like? And where are Trump's weaknesses with Republican voters? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. Also, a personal appeal from us. We'd like to get to know you, our listeners, better. So go to economist.com slash pod survey and tell us about yourselves. I'm Anne McElvoy with John Prideau. And in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>